my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Uh, our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Uh, we are also a YouTube channel now. If you go to YouTube to Spirit Matters Talk, all three words, uh, you'll find it. Uh, before we start, to help keep us on the air, to help keep our archives with uh, 260 plus episodes now, uh, free and available to the public. And we want to continue doing that. And if anyone wants to contribute, we're not a nonprofit. It's not a donation. You can go to spiritmatterstalk.com. Uh, we are thrilled today to have on as a guest, a leading figure in the, uh, in, in the Buddhist community in the United States, Sharon Salzberg. She is a central figure in the field of meditation and world-renowned teacher and author. She is the co-founder of Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, and the author of 11 books, including the New York Times bestseller, uh, Real Happiness. And uh, the book that her latest book, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World. Sharon, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on uh, and speak with us today. And there's the book. So well, thank you. Phil. Sharon, great to have you with us. Um, we always like to have our listeners be uh, familiar with the uh, spiritual path that the, uh, and the history of our guests. So if you could briefly tell us how you uh, went from in your early days as a seeker uh, to become one of the people who has brought that form of Buddhism into American life, uh, it would be of interest to people. Sure. Well, I grew up in New York City. I went to college in Buffalo, New York when I was 16 years old. SUNY Buffalo. SUNY Buffalo, that's correct. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was a sophomore, I took an Asian philosophy course. There had been a philosophy requirement. I had to do something. And in all honesty, as I look back at that decision, I think I just like, looked at the calendar and thought, well, that's on Tuesday, that's convenient. Let me do that one. So I did this Asian philosophy course, which completely changed my life. And there were two aspects that were most predominant. One was in talking about the Buddha, when the instructor would talk about the Buddha's take on suffering, that suffering is an inevitable and natural part of life. And unlike our assumption that that's a grim thing to hear, it actually was tremendously reassuring to me. Like many people, I'd had a childhood that <clears throat> I'd had a childhood that had some amount of trauma and um, real, real difficulty. And like for many people, mine was a family system where this was never ever spoken about. So I didn't know what to do with all of those feelings inside of me. And and here the Buddha saying suffering is a natural part of life translated in my mind to you're not so weird you belong this is inevitable this is this is just a part of things and so that was very important and then I heard in the context of that class that there were methods there were tools there were actual techniques people used they were called meditation and if you did them you would be a whole lot happier so I looked around Buffalo New York this is 1970 I did not see it anywhere. And I created an independent study project and presented it to the university. I said, I want to go to India and study meditation. And they said, okay. 
Wow. So off I went. I actually began meditating January 7th, 1971. In India, wow. in Bodh Gaya or someplace? Yeah. In Bodh Gaya. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Now, let me ask, uh, I, I, I got involved in TM in 1970. So we were in, and it was all new to me, spirituality. And I got introduced to it, not unlike you did. And uh, it was, uh, you know, I had to go looking for it kind of uh, as, as you did. At the time when you went, were you seeking, was it more, I want to be a Buddhist now and I want to uh, learn more about the Buddha and, and go down that road? Or I'm looking for these tools that allow me to go inward, meditation, or was it both or a combination of things? And how did that evolve as you, uh, as you took your journey? Uh, I don't think it was really at all about becoming a Buddhist or uh, I was, I was really interested in the practical direct how to like, what do you do, you know, and how do you mm-hmm. do it? And, um, and that flavor actually continued throughout much of my early acquaintance with the Buddhist teaching. Cause after all, here's the Buddha himself saying, don't believe anything, you know, don't believe anything just because I said it because a great elder has said it because you've read it in the sacred text. He said, put it into practice, see for yourself what's true. And I considered that like a breathtaking vision of human potential. It wasn't like, follow me, believe me. It was like, you can figure it out. You know, you can see for yourself what's true. Here are some tools. And uh, in fact, my first teacher was SN Goenka. It was a 10 day intensive immersive retreat in Bodh Gaya, India. And the first night of my first retreat, so this is really like foundational stuff for me. Uh, Goenka said, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life. <clears throat> and this is completely open. It's completely available to anybody. It's not a question of becoming a Buddhist. And so this is like day one, mm-hmm. right? Or night one. And so right. it, it really became a, a, a pillar of, of my own approach. And uh, uh, not long after that, uh, you and Joseph Goldstein, if I'm remembering right, Jack Cornfield, the original Jubus, had um, <laughs> you introduced that form of mindfulness meditation. Prior to that, most people's understanding of Buddhism was Zen, because Zen had been popularized by the Beats and so forth. Um, maybe you would like to explain why, uh, how those two traditions differ and mm-hmm. what the essential form of mm-hmm. uh, meditation was that you brought to uh, Barry and the West. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I met Joseph Goldstein at my first retreat in January of 1971. And also there were like Ramdas was a student there at that retreat and Krishnadas and many people who are still my good friends. And Jack Kornfield at the same time was having like a parallel life in Bank in Thailand, uh-huh. times in Bangkok. And uh, we met up in 1974. Um, you know, so I went in 70, in I began meditating in 71. I did come back uh, to do what I needed to do to get two years of independent study credit from school, then I went back to India. So I came back in 1974. Joseph had already come back maybe six months before and Jack had left Thailand and we all met up 
in uh, Boulder, Colorado, where the Europa Institute was first beginning. And we began getting, they were teaching and I was sort of, I became sort of like Joseph's TA, his teaching assistant. Um, and then we started getting invitations to lead retreats. So it would be very kind of haphazard. We had nothing, we're sleeping on people's living room couches and we'd get some letter, because of course it was all letters then, and, and we'd respond to an invitation, some combination of this small group of us. And at some point, somebody said to us, why don't you start a real retreat center in this country? It would be a kind of sacred site in this country. It would be a place where kind of energy that gets generated as people come together, doesn't have to, to dissipate. And um, the forms we were teaching were pretty direct. You know, the actual form of a retreat came largely from Goenka. The methodology came largely from the Mahasi Thayada School in Burma, which is trying to bring a continuity of awareness to sitting, standing, walking, lying down, eating, everything that you're doing becomes kind of a meditation. So um, I haven't done much Zen practice, some, and I've taught, say with friends like Roshi John Halifax, who sometimes says things to me like, that's a lot of explanation, because you know? <laughs> Zen in my <laughs> mind is like poetry. You just, you, you, um, immerse yourself in that environment and things happen. Whereas the Burmese are very exacting, like see if you can feel the breath as it moves in and out. These may be the sensations that you feel, apply a mental note to, you know, it's very um, technique oriented. And uh, essentially, of course, one has to think all these things are the same in that they're offering us the path out of some very real and direct suffering that we are likely experiencing. And so um, I think we live in an amazing mm -hmm. time in that you can kind of look around and, and see what feels right to you. Uh, Sharon, before I ask my next question, I forgot to mention in the, in the introduction that you have a podcast and one that I was listening to before we came on and I really was really enjoying it, the Meta Hour. So uh, M-E-T-T-A, and this will all be posted up. I highly recommend our listeners uh, go there. There's uh, she's got a, a tremendous number of uh, interviews, and I'll be certainly be listening to it more. Uh, yeah. So in in the years since '71 to now, I'm just curious. Your your practice has it changed much, or did you learn one basic practice or a set of practices and have kept them the same for the last fifty years? Fifty years isn't that shocking? So shocking. Shocks when I hear that, I think the same thing. A lot of 50th anniversaries these days. <laughs> um, it, it's funny because in this time of, you know, I'm in Barry, I'm, I'm quite isolated. I find myself going mm -hmm. back to like meditation 101. So I'm, I'm right. doing a lot of what was the first technique I ever learned, which was sit and just feel your breath, feel the natural movement of the in and out breath. And um, I've done several different practices over the years. Uh, that is still a foundational practice I come back to. Um, in at the end of my first retreat, so in 1971, Goenka led a metta, M-E-T-T-A, loving kindness meditation. 
but it was it was very much it's almost like a ceremonial way of saying goodbye uh you know to offer loving kindness to yourself to others to to the entire world and and it intrigued me and i thought oh what's that one and it wasn't until 1985 that i had the chance to go to burma for three months and do an intensive meditation retreat using just that technique of loving kindness. Um, and that became very much what I, I was teaching uh, really all over the world, what I was writing about. Um, so that was a, a big addition, you could say. And uh, I've had Tibetan teachers since those early days. All my early teachers were either Burmese or themselves had practiced in Burma. And then I began working with different Tibetan teachers and um, you know, and those were some other other techniques. I'd say the main parts of my practice, uh, let's say pre-pandemic, were uh, an awareness practice, a mindfulness or an open awareness practice when I was formally sitting. And then I tried to do loving kindness, I would say, whenever I was waiting and I counted every mode of transportation as waiting. <laughs> so every airplane, every taxi, walking down the streets of New York, um, waiting in someone's waiting room, I would silently be repeating phrases like "May you be happy, may you be peaceful." Uh, and then in in coming here and and not traveling and um, in that kind of life switch, I've incorporated a lot more formal loving kindness in my sitting. So uh, I am doing a lot of that as well. So here's a, a this is a good segue to something I wanted to ask you about. Um, because you're alluding to a, a variety of practices just within a single tradition. And then if you add all the yoga-based and Hindu-based meditation practices, there's a tremendous variety, and there's a tendency to lump them all together. And these days, mindfulness has become a kind of catchphrase that people just throw out for anything, <laughs> any practice that uses the mind. Are you concerned about that kind of uh, confusion around, uh, or the tendency to conflate everything under a certain umbrella and not have the uh, distinctive uh, qualities of each brought out? I don't know that I'm so concerned about that because it's like a tidal wave. It's like, what do you do? You know, um, the things I think about uh, that I try to maintain my own sense of integrity around, which is all I really can do, are a few. One is that, um, and this isn't like putting it down really, but I'd say that the main kind of popularization point of mindfulness as is understood, is basically inhabiting our lives much more fully. It's like if I'm drinking this cup of tea to really feel the, the weight of the cup, the warmth of the cup, to smell the tea, to taste the tea, and thereby have a much more fulfilling cup of tea, which is great. <clears throat> I think we would be different, our world would be different if we weren't always chasing after something that wasn't here. So. That's really how it's described as, as fully living or fully inhabiting your lives. I'd say classically, in my understanding, while that might be appreciated, 
the main, main benefit of mindfulness is not inhabiting our lives, it's understanding our lives. You know, we get to look at these thoughts, these patterns, these forces, these emotions for ourselves in a way that isn't like buying into them and also isn't pushing them away. So Mm -hmm. we get to understand, you know, maybe my whole life I've been taught that strength, real strength is vengefulness. It's like hold a grudge forever. But you get to look at that mind state and what it does in your body. And and you think maybe not so strong, actually. Mm -hmm. Or so many of us have been taught that compassion generosity, kindness, they're really kind of stupid and they're they're sentimental, they're saccharine Mm -hmm. sweet, they will bring you down. But you get to look at those too. Mm -hmm. And and a whole other understanding Mm -hmm. of their strength can emerge. And then, um, you know, just because we're paying attention through mindfulness, we see qualities of change and the truth of change in a whole other level and we see things like interconnection that really however alone we might feel that the truth the reality is that our lives are all connected and uh it's because we understand our lives in a whole other way what brings happiness what brings suffering that mindfulness uh helps us live differently Uh, so I'm Sharon, concerned about that. To, you don't hear a lot about wisdom or insight. Yeah. You know? I wanted to mention your book. I want to get into this a bit. And I started reading it yesterday, Real Change. And I was taken by the subtitle, uh, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World. And uh, many people that listen to our podcast are seasoned practitioners of spiritual practice that have been on a path a long time. A lot of people are brand new. They just dial in and 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 often you'll hear people say, when they think of meditation, when they think of Buddhism, when they think of Buddhist practice, they might think this is something you do for yourself. Your subtitle connects the self to the world. And if you could uh, reflect on that in terms of uh, uh, practice, uh, Buddhist practice, uh, and how uh, the individual practicing it, how that translates to uh, healing or changing the world. Well, I think it's inevitable, even if it's somewhat unspoken, you know, or, or even mm-hmm. unseen because we change, you know, we, um, we do develop understanding. We do develop insight into what brings us happiness and it's not being selfish, turns out, you know, and, and we do develop insight about strength and turns out that vengefulness is not the best path to strength. We also learn things about balance, you know, ways we might, to have a friend who's struggling and we want out of the deepest compassion to help and how that needs to be accompanied maybe by compassion for ourselves as well or or wisdom you know a sense of boundaries a sense of reality like i sadly can't control your mind you know like no one has as of yet invented the chip we can implant in someone else's brain without having the remote control like cheer up you know and would it be a better world? Probably, you know, at least if I had the control, I believe it would be, but that's not reality. And so um, there are ways in which we just change through the process of meditation. And these are all, because our lives are connected, our lives are about relationship of one kind or another. 
um, then our actions just shift. And, you know, there's studies now about how mindfulness will bring about compassion and, and it's a very lived compassion. What I was also trying to do in the book, uh, I think it was uh, two different populations I had especially in mind. One were people that I, we call caregivers, you know, people who are either in their professional lives or in their personal lives in their family or just the way they tend to relate to others are the givers, they're the caregivers, they're, you know, they're offering help. They're on the front lines of suffering often. And I've been teaching a lot, a lot of people like that. And um, they're incredibly kind in giving and they're burning out in droves. And so maybe it's that question of balance, maybe it's that question of limits, whatever. And so in my, in my work in teaching, I've been offering tools of meditation to a lot of people who are on the front lines of suffering. And, and one day I just kind of thought, oh, activists are kind of like that too. You know, they're, they're in that same predicament. Maybe contemplative tools would be, would be applicable. So that was one whole population. The other population was really um, going back to meditation, bringing forth compassion. I probably had countless people say to me, you know, I was walking down the street and somebody came up to me and asked me for a dollar and I gave them a dollar because that's my habit. But it's the first time I've ever looked that street person in the eye and realized that's a human being. You know, and that I see really as the fruition of, of their meditation. But people often follow that with a sense of helplessness. Well, I could never do enough. I, you know, I can't contribute enough. I don't have the mm -hmm. smarts. I don't have the wherewithal to make a real difference. And so I won't do anything. And so I really wanted to encourage people to take that step, even if it seems very small or reach out to someone or just try to do the good that's in front of you, even if it seems like it could never be enough because that's how I believe change happens. And so I always get happy when people show me the book cover because as someone pointed out to me, uh, it's the same color as the Statue of Liberty, which was a total accident. <laughs> It's a complete accident. She's like my icon. She's my heroine. She's in this book. She's in other books I've written. Um, and she'd always been a symbol of tremendous compassion to me. Of course, there's a poem. There's her greeting. It's a sense of you belong. You can find a home here. Even you mm -hmm. that no one else wants. So you have a place here. But it was only actually in researching this book that I kind of comprehended more fully that she's actually in mid stride. I mean, that's how she is. Her one leg is up because she's taking a step. It's a very active compassion. It's not just kind of laying back, you know, with the welcome, it's, it's taking a step and that's become an important symbol for me. Great, I, I was pleased um, when I received the book that you had um, uh, moved in that direction. Well, maybe it wasn't a move, but that you were addressing the larger issues beyond self-improvement and gaining enlightenment or whatever, that's been the preoccupation of so many of us of a certain generation <laughs> spiritually. And 
over the years, I'm not the only one who came to the conclusion that there's a little too much self-involvement and not enough uh, engagement, not enough social concern, especially the last five years. So I've been talking and writing about it and I was very pleased to see you were too. Um, did you share that observation that uh, in the larger uh, population of meditators and yogis, uh, there was uh, a tendency to withdraw rather than engage. And uh, are you trying to provide a sort of counterbalance to that? Well, I mean, I think there's, there've been strong counterbalances to that totally without me, you know, like, yeah. um, you know, so I don't think like I'm seeding a movement or anything, you know. Uh, I, I think part of what's happened is that um, as the conversation shifts, like I'll go back to that person on the street who looked the guy in the eye and saw for the first time that this was a human being. There's another step that people often don't follow. Not only do they not necessarily take action, I mean, they give the guy a dollar, but that it might stop there. Uh, but there's also not a not a common looking towards system cha systems change you know it's like if you give the guy a dollar do you then go on to think well, what's the housing policy of this city so that there's so many people mm. on the streets not likely unless right. you're you're trained to that you know and mm -hmm. that's its own kind of education does it exist within buddhism i actually believe it does you know as a kind of analysis of conditionality and causes and conditions and so on um, but it wouldn't be a common tool and and so um, I think there is a next step for a lot of people that's not just an emotional reaction to uh, you know some very very painful things we might witness or, or undergo um, but it actually has that kind of system view in place which would which would be a big change uh, Sharon, I have one final question from my side, and then I'll turn it over to Phil. Um, your book, what, what, who should read it? What, what should they expect to get from it? What would you like them to get out of the book? This last book? Yes. Um, uh, I would like to have people always, whatever, whether they're sitting in front of me or on Zoom or reading a book, um, emerge with a greater sense of confidence and clarity about using these tools if they find that interesting or appealing um, in some context of understanding that we um, do live in an interconnected universe, that we rely on one another, that we are dependent on one another, and that uh, it's through that understanding we find the strength in qualities like kindness that we might have really thought were uh, weaknesses actually before. I should um, point out to listeners and viewers now uh, that there's a lot of practical tools in the book. Um, one caught my eye was uh, every chapter has uh, a, a form of meditation practice or mindfulness practice. And there was one that helps people deal with 
uh, difficult thoughts and feelings that arise. And and I these last few years, especially, and with the pandemic, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of anger, fear, um, loneliness, all grief. Um, <laughs> I know it's complicated, but perhaps you share some uh, advice for people dealing with that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't have the cup in this room with me, but uh, people, friends are taking to making me cups with things I often say on them. You know, so this one says banging your head against the wall is never fun, which apparently is something <laughs> I say a lot. But uh, another cup, someone sent me says, we feel what we feel, you know? So rather than chastising ourselves or blaming ourselves or like, I potentially have a brand new thing to say to myself, which is you've been meditating for 50 years. Why are you still feeling that? You know, um, we can, we can get kind of into that routine and, and, uh, but we feel what we feel. And one of the actual benefits of mindfulness is that it helps us be with our feelings, both beautiful, pleasant, wonderful ones, and really difficult, painful feelings in a different way. So, uh, you know, our relationship to these feelings can often be quite distorted. And that comes in the form of what we call add-ons. You know, let's say you're feeling sadness, you're feeling fear. What might you be adding onto it that conceivably is making it even worse? sense of future anticipation. What's it gonna feel like tomorrow? What's it gonna feel like next week? Sense of solidity. This is the only thing I ever feel. Sense of isolation. I am the only one that feels this. Sense of having lost control. I should have been able to stop this. You know, so the blame and the anguish and everything we pile on makes it so much worse. And actually we do have the capacity we have the awareness, we have the balance, we have the clarity to be with these feelings in a different way. So that different way doesn't mean shunning them or pushing them away, but it also doesn't mean being overcome by them and defined by them. And so we say sometimes mindfulness is the place in the middle where you're fully aware of what you're experiencing without falling into it, without pushing it away. And that's where the learning takes place. You know, so that's the first thing we say is like, look for the add-ons. What might I be adding on to this experience? Um, and see if you can relinquish the add-ons. And then we have a chance to look at the feeling. So let's say it's anger, this great wave of anger. Instead of like what I'm angry about and what I'm gonna do about it, we get interested in the anger itself. Like, what does it feel like? So it's almost like that pivot, the gesture of my hand. And, what does it feel like in my body? What's the mood? What's like the anger movie? And if we can sit there without the add-ons, we'll see. Oh, look at all those moments of sadness that are a part of that. Look at all those moments of fear that are a part of that. And I have had the uniform experience, and it's actually uh, somewhat of the teachings, that if we sit with the anger with that kind of clarity, we will see a kind of kernel of helplessness. And it's, it's to make that feeling go away that we reach for that other energy. And um, I know that if I can get to that level where I see the helplessness 
I can then resolve to do something, even if it seems very small. And that's like channeling the energy of the anger without getting kind of consumed by it. I have one, one other question uh, has to do with practice. Most people associate Buddhism or Buddha and the secular methods that grew out of it, uh, it as a kind of austere path of meditation practice, uh, especially, you know, Zen. Um, is there a devotional element in your practice? Because, and the reason I thought of this is I'm on Krishna Das's mail, uh, mailing list and I see you're doing a program with him, you know, our leading uh, bhakta. And so um, I'm, I'm curious about uh, your and other people committed to a Buddhist practice, whether there's a devotional outlet. Uh, well, Krishnas was at my first retreat, so we've been friends for 50 years, you know, which is like shocking. And we do teach together, you know, fairly frequently whenever we can. Uh, he, he usually provides the bhakti. I mean, um, and actually, I, you know, I listen to his chanting all the time and, it, and it's, it is a vehicle for me. So there is, there is a kind of bhakti um, strain within Buddhist teaching, certainly toward the Buddha himself. Um, there's chanting, there's there are devotional practices in the monastic traditions, especially. Um, and it's just generally love, you know? I mean, it, it, it's there, it's not really a cold. Even when we use the word mindfulness, you know, it implies, say, being relieved of all that self-judgment, you know, and, and really being kind to ourselves. And, being able to open to those painful feelings without blaming ourselves. You know, but some people don't like the word mindfulness because they say it sounds cold, like it's very heady and very clinical. So I see a struggle going on trying, you know, people say, why don't we call it kindfulness or call it warm <laughs> mindfulness or call it heartfulness or Ramdas is loving awareness. And so we'll just call it mindfulness, you know, but let's understand what mindfulness actually means. And, and so there's certainly love and there's loving kindness and there's often devotion to one's teacher or, or to the Buddha himself. Um, and for many people that, you know, for some people that is like the biggest drawing card ever. And for some people it's not what they're interested in. They're interested in the science and the neuroscience and, or some people have both actually. Right. Good. Thank you for being with us. Audience, uh, the, her new book is Real Change. Some of her previous books were also real something, real happiness, real love. So she obviously likes to keep it real. And <laughs> we thank you for being with us and uh, keep up the good work. And revisit. Right, right. and, and the podcast. Yes. Uh, her podcast, Sharon's podcast, The Meta Hour. The Meta Hour, easy to find online and uh, click and listen. Enjoy it. Probably and enjoy us. Same Spirit Matters. We Spirit Matters. We've probably shared many again. Probably. Yeah, I, actually, yes. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you so much. Thank you much. so much. Take care. Bye.